this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better yeah. to do. I was going to say, that's coming to you once again from... From our folks' house. Now we're in our dad's office. Yeah. We may find another place, but it's working out. Actually, the sound in here isn't bad. Yeah. There's so much junk in here that I know it's like, it, it absorbs the sound. Yeah, I guess so. Do you have any updates or anything? Am I supposed to? No, I don't think. D- is so. there anything I, we Albert need to talk? Albert Flick about? is not doing anything. He's just sitting in jail. I don't think I have anything. I can't think of anything either. Okay. Wow. So okay, I guess thanks we can get, for coming by. <laughs> yeah, I guess we can get right to our story. Did you tell me you were doing two stories? I had thought of it because oh, this is going to oh, be sorry. mercifully for our listeners for a change. No, they this like is long ones. Gonna be kind of, that's, that's what, what she, she said. said. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this everybody. is going to be kind of short and I was going to do two. That's but what he said. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but it took sorry. me, it took me longer. I'm, no, I was waiting I know, for you to no. say that's what he said. No, she said, I'm done. To do this story, even though it's short, the research, as you'll see, had issues. So it's hard when it's a story that is, I don't want to put down any other podcasts or anything like that, but there are certain stories that make the rounds on the internet and make the rounds on the podcast. This story is, is pretty new. It's very new. But also, it's hard when it's it's a story that's not huge national it's news. It's not. I wasn't even going to mention podcasts. I'm going to be putting down... News organizations. Oh, she's going. I'm going for and not really putting guns. down. I was well. You'll see when I get into okay. it because I'll talk about. Well, it. let's get into. But it. But I want to start out by saying that this is a fairly new crime, or at least a new arrest. It was hard to find out detailed information about both the victim and his wife, who's been charged with his murder, despite the fact that they could both be considered minor local celebrities where they live in the Portland, Oregon area. The arrest affidavit has been sealed, and the crime is fairly new, as I said. And I feel in a way that so many people got caught on the novelty narrative of the arrest, no one felt it was necessary to dig deeper. And I'm talking about the romance novelist who, in November 2011, wrote a blog post, How to Murder Your Husband. Her husband, Dan Brophy, a chef at the Oregon Culinary Institute, in June was shot, and in September... Nancy Crampton Brophy, his wife, was arrested for his murder. Hmm. So so he was shot in June and she was arrested in... Yes. In September. September. Okay. As I said, there's not a lot of information out there. I'm a little confounded by this. It was always my experience working for newspapers that when someone was killed, we'd talk to people, look at their past jobs, where they went to school, find out who they were. I don't see any evidence of this on the Oregonian's website or anyone else's except for some minor phrase into that. Granted, I'm as far across the country as you can get in looking on the internet. Perhaps there was stuff that isn't on the internet, although in 2018 it's hard to fathom that. And maybe there was some coverage that's now buried on the internet by subsequent developments. Who knows? I've looked on local websites, Oregon websites, though, and can't find much. Which isn't to say I don't have much. Most of what I have here comes from the Oregonian People magazine, a little bit from the Washington Post, and stuff out there that's basically the victim and his wife's own words. Daniel and Nancy Lee Crampton Brophy... He's Daniel Brophy, she's Crampton Brophy, although it doesn't appear she ever used the hyphen. And when writing, she went by Nancy Brophy. Oh. Hmm. Recently, at least. They seem to live idyllic lives and have an idyllic marriage. Mm. I say that because it's what I've read in many, many articles about his death and her arrest. Though I have to say, looking at the information available, I'm not really sure that's true. You'll see what I mean. Daniel Brophy, 63, was a chef at the Oregon Culinary Institute. 
as well as a marine biologist, master gardener, and an expert on mushrooms, according to sources (laughs) that all may actually be the same source. I don't know. Wow, he's a Renaissance man. Well, the marine biologist I had trouble tracking down. I'm not sure where that comes from. We talk about it a lot, but this is definitely a case of news organizations repeating stuff other (sighs) news organizations have written. People do some of your own research. Yep. But he graduated from the University of Sioux Falls in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It's a Christian liberal arts college, and he graduated in 1976. It's Christian, but it's the University of... Sioux Falls, yeah. It's just like San Diego University is a Jesuit college. You can be called things. Are you questioning my Wikipedia research? No. No, That wasn't from Wikipedia. I actually looked the college up, believe it or not, since I seem to know so little. But um, it's not clear what he majored in or where he's originally from or what he did in early life. The most information I could find out about his life comes from him on a five-minute video posted by the Oregon Culinary Institute, where he worked, in 2010. In the video... He says his background in food spans 45 years. So at the time of his death in June, that would have been more than 50 years. My background in food is my whole life. (laughs) I know. I was going to say mine, too. He says that in the past 35 years, he's probably had 150 vegetable gardens. Whoever's making the video apparently asks if he could eat only one cuisine for the rest of his life, what it would be. He says he'd opt for Thai. Uh, I don't know. I think I'd do Italian. Uh, Me too. Definitely Italian. Apparently asked how his career started. He said a restaurant called and asked if he'd like to come work. And then he says three months washing dishes in Kansas City led to the premier position of graveyard shift in a 24 hours restaurant. He said he moved to Portland, Oregon in 1976, which would have been the same year he graduated from college, and said that in a span of four years, he probably worked for 10 European chefs. And he said, and they don't really care about human rights, don't care if you have concert tickets or want two nights off in a row. Kind of sounds like working for a newspaper. He said he had 10 years of kitchen management from McCormick's and Jake's, two Oregon fish places. And he worked at Jake's Beaverton Fish House as a sous chef. And Beaverton is where he and his wife, Nancy, lived. He said he was always looking to learn new ingredients and new techniques and new cuisines. And that kept it interesting for him. In the video, he doesn't mention his wife, Nancy Crampton Brophy, who he married in 1991. Accounts said they had been married for 27 years when he was killed, so it was either 1991 or 1992. I don't know. Okay. But one of those things. The video is interspersed with clips of him working at the school, and he seems focused, knowledgeable, doesn't mince words, but also cares about the students and what he's doing. He has a sense of humor. It shows him dressed as a tree, dancing a prayer to the mushroom gods. (laughs) Another video I found online shows him in a cow costume as a student labels cuts of meat on his body against the Mm. clock. A photo in the 5-Minute Culinary Institute video shows him in his black chef outfit with a very serious look on his face holding a rooster and a cleaver. Mm. He'd been a chef and instructor at the Oregon Culinary Institute since it opened in 2006. And it's on the southeast side of Portland, Oregon. Okay. Or maybe the southwest side. Our sister's on one of them. This is on the, you know how Portland, Oregon's... Split into those quadrants. I can never keep them straight. I'm sure all our Portland, Oregon listeners are friggin' happy about that. They hate that. our guts, I know. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. His LinkedIn profile also says he was a chef at something called the Good Taste Institute from 2006 to 2011. This is possibly a catering business that he and his wife briefly ran, referred to without detail in some articles. The LinkedIn page has next to nothing on it, by the way except for his university, the Good Taste Institute, and the Culinary Institute. 
While he's described by many as tough and gruff, intimidating and demanding, he was also considered compassionate and caring, and many people obviously cared for him. There aren't a lot of details about his life outside work, though. His obituary simply says the services are by the Neptune Society, Happy Valley, Oregon. The Neptune Society offers environmentally friendly economical cremations, by the way. Ooh. A former Culinary Institute student, Travis Richards, told People magazine that Brophy was not only known for his kitchen prowess and Brophyisms, such as the best cure for a sick chicken is a shovel, <laughs> um, but also for his generosity with the local homeless community. He would go and deliver hot meals to people, Richard said. Every Thanksgiving, we would do a big bake-off, and all the pies, he would personally go and deliver them. One of the few articles I can find after his death, but before Nancy's arrest, shows people from the Institute delivering food as a tribute to him, possibly to a shelter or food oh, bank. Nice. Travis also told people that, quote, Brophy's warm heart was also evident in how he spoke about his wife, whom he called management as a kind of culinary <laughs> world in-joke. And I'm like, hmm, The right. boss lady. We knew they loved each other very much and that she was his best friend, Richard said. I'm not convinced. As we'll see with Nancy a little later, how you publicly discuss your spouse to strangers doesn't mean what people may infer it does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As I said, the couple lived in Beaverton, a few miles outside of Portland, a house they'd owned since 1999. They had two dogs, PB and J. Oh, I, I don't it. know what breed. God damn it. I know. Dan raised turkeys and chickens in their backyard, and he had an extensive garden. And he took a shovel to the turkeys and chickens. <laughs> yeah. Nancy has been described by many as a self-published romance writer, but it looks like her her fiction writing career didn't really get going until 2011. She would have been in her mid to late 50s. According to her LinkedIn page, she got a BA from the University of Houston, which she attended from 1968 to 1971. She got a master's in education from the University of Indiana in 1974. According to her Amazon author's biography, she published trade journal articles and technical writing for human resource departments before she became a romance writer. The Oregonian mentions trying to get some comments from Vancouver, Washington Insurance Agency, which is across the river from Portland, Oregon, and a southeast Portland catering business she worked for, but doesn't name them. Hmm. According to the criminal complaint, as quoted by People, she also sold Medicare. Her LinkedIn bio says she worked for something called Safe Money Smart LLC, from 2010 to the present. That company's LinkedIn profile says it's the premier agent marketing service for all things annuities, and then a lot of blah, blah, blah about its national reach and everything, but it only has 29 followers, which isn't a lot for business on LinkedIn, mm. and it only has one person on LinkedIn who says they've worked there, Nancy Brophy. Oh, okay. If you're not familiar with LinkedIn, go on and see how many people it says work for the company you work for. Now, if you if it's a small family-owned business and there's only half a dozen of you, maybe nobody. But if it's a national business or a big... LinkedIn is a work networking site, and I guarantee there will be more than one, for instance, for where you work. Yes. yes. I even have a lot of followers, and I don't even go on. Yeah. Oh. In any case, Safe Money Smart LLC's website no longer exists, and an LLC site on the internet says it's defunct. Some reports say she was retired from working as a hairstylist in Medford, Oregon. This apparently comes from a LinkedIn listing for another Nancy Brophy. Uh. And all it says is retired hairstylist Medford, Oregon, with no other information. I know it's not her because Medford is 270 miles from Beaverton, where she'd lived since at least 1999, and that'd be a hell of a commute. So <laughs> even the little bit you can find out on the internet about is her. Is suspect. Uh, 
She joined a local chapter of the Romance Writers of America in 2003, but it's not clear if that's when she began writing. We'll talk a little more about her romance writing career in a bit, but I can tell you as a member of the Mystery Writers of America, you can join without having published a book. There are different levels, and a lot of people join when they want to become a writer because there's a lot of help and information. Daniel Brophy was found by some of his students at 8.30 a.m. on June 2nd, shot and bleeding on the floor in the kitchen at the Oregon Culinary Institute, where he'd gone early to prepare for the day's classes. He had been the only one there. First responders attempted to revive him, but he was pronounced dead at the scene. It was immediately ruled a homicide. Police at first said they had no idea who could have done it and asked anyone who knew or saw anything to let them know. It's in an urban neighborhood, and one cop speculated that someone must have seen or heard something out of the ordinary. And that's the last I can find about the police investigation until September. Wow. Not even the standard, we're following up leads, nothing to report articles that you'd normally see. And I know Portland, Oregon's a big city. It definitely has more murders than Maine. But it's an out-of-the-ordinary death. Yeah. He, he's a local celebrity. There were blog posts that he posted on the Oregonian's website from like 2012, 2013, about foraging for food and that type of thing. He was a known person. Yeah, it's kind of weird. You'd think that there would have been some kind of in-depth article. And if there was, and for some reason it's just not on their website, then I apologize to the Oregonian, which is a good paper that I respect. I just cannot understand why there wasn't more about this. Nancy Crampton Brophy posted on Facebook the day after his death. For my Facebook friends and family, I have sad news to relate. My husband and best friend, Chef Dan Brophy, was killed yesterday morning. For those of you who are close to me and feel this deserved a phone call, you are right. But I'm struggling to make sense of everything right now. There's a candlelight vigil at Oregon Culinary Institute tomorrow, Monday, June 4th at 7 p.m. While I appreciate all of your loving responses, I am overwhelmed. Please save phone calls for a few days until I can function. At the tribute for her husband on June 4th, two days after his death, she said to the hundreds who gathered, Dan was one of the very few people I've known that knew exactly what he wanted in life and loved doing it. She pointed out that he loved to teach, he loved mushrooms, which <laughs> gets a laugh, which seems to startle her a little bit. I don't think she thought she was being funny. Yeah, you did too. It was an appreciative laugh from the audience, but she looks a little kind of taken. You have to watch the video. Yeah. Which I'll put on her website. Okay. After her husband's death, it looked like she was planning to move. People reports that neighbor Heidi Hutchinson recalls Crampton Brophy saying that her husband's death had lingered and a move seemed her best chance at escape. She said that his side of the bedroom was haunting her, Hutchinson <laughs> said. The memory of him was upsetting her and she wanted to move pretty quickly. A fellow writer, Anna Brantwood, who'd known the couple for 20 years, told the Oregonian the couple was inseparable and appeared to be very close and even in a catering business together in the past. That's the only thing I can find out about that catering business. Neighbor Don McConnell, a friend of six years, told the Oregonian that he and others who lived nearby thought Crampton Brophy had an unusual reaction to her husband's death. She never showed any signs of being upset or sad, said McConnell, whose backyard borders the couple's house. I would say she had an air of relief, like it was almost a godsend. See, he's saying that in hindsight, though, right? He is. He talked to Crampton Brophy about how strange it was that the killer targeted Brophy while alone at work, and he wondered what the motive could have been. It sounded more to me like a disgruntled student who had a thing with your husband, he said, that he said to Nancy. I said, are they, the police, keeping in touch with you? She said, no, I'm a suspect. He said she showed no emotion. She told him, too, that she was getting ready to move. 
I thought she must have been one tough woman to handle it the way she did, McConnell said. <laughs> Nancy Brophy was arrested September 8th and charged with murder and unlawful use of a weapon and held at Multnomah County Detention Center, she pleaded not guilty at her arraignment on September 17th. At that arraignment, the judge sealed the probable cause affidavit that led to her arrest at the request of the prosecutor, and that's something that's not often done. The Washington Post asked police about the evidence justifying her arrest or what led police to suspect her, but they wouldn't say, citing the ongoing investigation. I know, that's the thing. When they seal those affidavits, it sucks. That's where all the good information comes from. Dan Brophy's mother, Karen Brophy, told ABC News, The Washington Post, and The Oregonian that her family is in shock and wouldn't comment further. None of those news outlets, by the way, said where she lived, whether it was in Portland or another state, or where Daniel was from, or any other info about his family. Nancy Crampton Brophy's sister, Holly Crampton, told ABC that they aren't swayed by the allegations. None of us believe it, she said. It's craziness, and it's just not true. Also, no information there about where her family lives or where she's from. I think everyone in the neighborhood is surprised and shocked, neighbor Jeff Hutchinson told People. It's more disbelief. The Oregonian quoted fellow author Anna Brentwood, who we hit earlier, as saying, Everyone that knows her, especially those closer to her than myself, are sick at heart. We are hoping the police are wrong and just going after the easiest target. People magazine said, Those who know the couple are left to puzzle over what may really have been going on in their relationship in light of the murder charge. And, of course, the big headline is that Nancy, in November 2011, published a blog post on See Jane Wright, which is a site for self-published writers, called How to Murder Your Husband. That and that alone is why, unless you live in Portland, Oregon, or its surrounding area, that you've heard about this murder. Memo to writers. Not a great idea to publish a piece like that if there's anything, (laughs) anything that might lead the cops to think a few years later you could have murdered your husband. That's right. And I'd like to think the police have other evidence than a seven-year-old blog post. Accounts of the marriage are all positive, as you've heard. Let's get Nancy's take, and this is from what she's written on her website and her own blog posts. On her website, she says the marriage has, in her author bio, its ups and downs, but more good times than bad. A constantly repeated anecdote in many of the stories used by many to show her affection for Daniel is this one. And I just want to remind people, she is a writer. Okay. I can't tell you when I fell in love with my husband, but I can relate the moment I decided to marry him. I was in the bath. It was a big tub. I expected him to join me, and when he was delayed, I called out, Are you coming? His answer convinced me he was Mr. Right. Yes, but I'm making hors d'oeuvres. Can you imagine spending the rest of your life without a man like that? If he likes to make food. <laughs> I think she felt it was romantic. Yeah, I guess. Depends on what he made for a d'oeuvres. Yeah, I, I, that's what I was <laughs> And I also don't like eating in the tub, but that's a... No, you know. I don't either. I found in calendar listings in the Oregonian and other papers that, at least for a brief time, she and Daniel did some baking boot camp workshops together. Maybe at the same time they had their catering business. The listings I found are all from 2012-2013. One interesting thing I found out that I'd like to know more about is that their house in Beaverton, which they'd lived in since 1999, according to Zillow, and a reference on Nancy's website, burned in 2010. Nancy, in an author bio that looked like it was put on her website when it was first created and on her Amazon author page when that was first created, when she first started writing around 2011, she says, as I said before, like all marriages, we've had our ups and downs. More good times than bad. Most recently, we have spent 14 nail-biting months living in an apartment while our house was rebuilt from a house fire. 
In the process, I have acquired an in-depth knowledge of kitchen cabinets, bathroom plumbing fixtures, and leaking roofs. If this writing thing doesn't work out, I plan to investigate becoming a contractor who specializes in on-time, under-budget remodels. Believe me, there is a fortune to be made by the builder who can deliver on his promises. She isn't any more specific about the fire, and I can't find any news stories about it online. But on the Zillow listing, house had electrical fire in basement in 2010. That's where I found out it was an electrical fireman. Has new wiring, new plumbing, new HVAC, new heat pump, new roof siding, cedar, new cabinets, new light fixtures, hardwood floors throughout, throughout first floor, second floor carpeted and hardwoods, garage has new roof. Says it has an attic dormer, an office, a walk-in closet, clever attic storage. Basement is large and unfinished, but heated and cooled. The house was listed for, well, the Zestimate was <clears throat> six eighty nine nine five one. It does say it's off the market. It was a four-bed, two-bath, 2,136 square feet. Oh. So it sounds like a nice house, and it's off the market, so she was selling it. It either got taken off the market when she was arrested, or she took it off the market for some reason. Aside from all those jobs that she either did have or didn't have, I'm not sure what the sourcing for all of that was, she also wrote, Her first published work, she says on her website, was a pamphlet for the University of Houston, Between Your Navel and Your Knees. She coyly implies on her website, it's it's what it sounds like, but I looked it up. What little I could find is that it was published in 1972 under the name Nancy Crampton. It was 44 pages, and from a brief listing on Amazon that has no information or a cover photo or anything, it says it's out of print. It appears it may have been a children's book or a young adult book or pamphlet about sexuality. And that would have been written between the time or around the time she was transitioning from her BA to go to graduate school for education, so maybe it was part of that. She would have been 23 at the time she wrote it. There's also, just a side note, a fairly successful photographer, Nancy Crampton, in the Amazon. You know how Amazon shows people who looked at this also looked at that? Then they go to look at the other Nancy Crampton book. The Washington Post calls her a productive writer. Several references are to her being a successful writer. There are even a couple blog posts that call her books popular and say she had a following, which she may have had. Success really depends on your definition of it. Her books have few reviews, and some of them, some of the reviews look like they're from friends and family and fellow writers. Aside what she's posted about herself, there's little out there about her as an author, and there aren't any newspaper features. There's maybe one or two independent reviews on, like, romance writing Yeah, type so not, site. like, there's no, like, newspaper reviews right. or anything. Right. Like and that. I'm not saying all this to be mean or na 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 but it goes to my later premise about her. And I, in, even a writer of my low stature, you can, if you Google me, you can find reviews um, by... By people that's not even that related to you. Right. <laughs> that type of thing. And, of course, her most famous piece of writing is her November 2011 post on the C. Jane Wright blog, How to Murder Your Husband. And I know everybody wants to know. It's a fairly short blog post, so I'm just going to read it. All right. As a romantic suspense writer, I spend a lot of time thinking about murder and, consequently, about police procedure. After all, if the murder is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail. And let me say clearly for the record, I don't like jumpsuits and orange isn't my color. I'll say at her arraignment, she was not wearing an orange jumpsuit. Mm. And then she has a subhead, motives. One, financial. This is big. Divorce is expensive, and do you really want to split your possessions? Or, if you married for money, aren't you entitled to all of it? 
The drawback is the police aren't stupid. They are looking at you first, so you have to be organized, ruthless, and very clever. Husbands have disappeared from cruise ships before. Why not yours? Two, lying, cheating bastard, deception of any sort. This is a crime of passion. In anger, you bash his head in or stab him with a kitchen knife. Most of the time, there's a trail that leads directly to you. Each type of murder leaves clues. A crime of passion does not look like a stranger was involved. And who is left to clean the blood up from the carpeting? Three, fell in love with someone else. Usually financial is also involved here. Let's say your church frowns on divorce. You need to be a widow so you won't fall out of favor with your religion. At this point, I should mention that it helps if you aren't too burdened by the Ten Commandments. Four, abuser. This one is tough. Anybody can claim abuse. What is abuse? To a teenager, it might look different than to a spouse. As a motivation, this reason usually comes up after you've been arrested. Not a lot of abused wives dial 911 upon burning down the house with their husband in it. Five, it's your profession. Now we're talking. You already possess both skill and knowledge. You have the moral ambiguity necessary to carry it off. Quick hit and you fade from the scene. Get your payment up front from someone else because life insurance probably won't send a check. Options to consider. Guns. Loud, messy, require some skill. If it takes ten shots for the sucker to die, either you have terrible aim or he's on drugs. Knives. Really personal and close up, blood everywhere. Ew. Garrett. How much upper body strength does it require to strangle a person? Random heavy piece of equipment. Usually this involves hitting someone hard with a baseball bat or the pipe wrench you just happen to have in your hand. Poison. Considered a woman's weapon, arsenic is easy to obtain, Worse, easy to trace. It takes a month or two to kill someone. Plus, they are sick the entire time. Who wants to hang out with a sick husband? Knowledge of pharmaceuticals would be handy. Availability would be even better. A word of caution. Watch out for poisons found in nature. They are not a sure thing. Too little? Too much? Your mother always told you to marry a doctor. Now you know why. Hmm. Hiring a hitman. Do you know a hitman? Neither do I. And an amazing number of hitmen rat you out to the police, or blackmail you later. Hiring a lover. Mm. Never a good idea. The husband dies and the wife gets the money. The lover doesn't always win in this scenario. Sometimes he too finds himself facing a loaded gun. Then I think the last few paragraphs here are very interesting. I find it easier to wish people dead than to actually kill them. I don't want to worry about blood and brains splattered on my walls. And really, I'm not good at remembering lies. But the thing I know about murder is that every one of us has it in him, her, when pushed far enough. What constitutes a good romantic suspense is the whys. What happened that forced a person into the situation? How will they justify this action? By the way, he needed killing is not a legal defense. <laughs> Can they keep a secret? A confidence whispered in the dark is no longer secret. What if killing doesn't produce the right results? Would you do it again? Could they do it again? What if they liked it? So that's her blog post. Mm-hmm. This would have been, if what's online can be the gauge, in the early stages of her trying to get her writing career fired up. My guess is she wanted to write something that caught people's attention. Yeah. And that it was probably meant as tongue-in-cheek. I would think so. It wasn't that good, like, funny. Right. The problem was, if you're writing something tongue-in-cheek, you have to be funnier. Yeah. And... If you're not a good writer, it comes yeah, off as the way that one did. I can find nothing on her site or anywhere else that says how her husband reacted to it hmm. or how other people did. 
See, Jane Wright made their blog private after the Washington Post asked about it shortly after Nancy was arrested, though obviously it can still be found online. I couldn't find the comments to it. There's also the fact that one of her recent series, romance series, was the is it was called the wrong series the wrong brother which was her first book and her biggest bestseller the wrong navy seal the wrong hero one of them is also called the wrong husband and that's also gotten a lot of attention here's my take from the point of view of someone who's also trying to make it as a writer though in the relatively but not much easier traditionally published realm rather than self-published she self-published eight books including one about writing plotting your story arc Most of them were published between 2011 and 2015. All the posts on her blog were between March 2015 and May 2015. There are only four blog posts. The first three were written within two weeks in March of 2015. The first one was how writing was like, was like being a celebrity chef. It starts, I watch a lot of cooking shows on television. My husband is a chef, instructor at a culinary school, but really I watch because I like food. What I've discovered is that there's a thin line between being a creative chef and a train wreck. A very thin line. She goes on to say what she's learned from cooking shows, but the thing that sticks with me is the line that there's a thin line between being a creative chef and a train wreck. A very thin line. At the end of the chef one, she says, will somebody please comment so I know you're reading this. So she gets a couple comments, I think, from writer friends uh, bucking her up. So it looks like she started publishing books in 2011. I think that the post, How to Murder Your Husband, was part of her way to get herself out there and market herself. You want to publish blog posts and get your splash and get your name out there. In 2012, she did an interview with a blog called Romancing the Genre. (laughs) Um, That's basically a question and answer where she gives writerly type answers to questions. And there's a long selection from one of her books to read. Then she kind of fizzles out... There's those calendar entries online where she's doing baking boot camp with her husband and stuff like that. And then it looks like in 2015, she kind of renewed her efforts. She reissued her first book, The Wrong Brother, the first of her wrong series. (laughs) She also blogs about how she had set out to write a book a month for the entire year. Wow. And that's like, whoa, even for romance novels. Even Barbara Cartland probably could I know. Do that. And she blogs, and this is in March, blogs that it's not, she's already a month behind. No shit. And she obviously didn't. You'd have to write, like, how many pages a day? Six or seven? Well, for it's not how much you write one. a day, because as you know, from my writing, I write a lot at one sitting. But it's how much of it's usable Mm -hmm. and all the other work you have to do. It makes me wonder how much she knows about writing. Yeah. To set that kind of goal And and I don't want to be... So it was in May that um, she says she's a month behind. That was her last blog post, May 2015, that starts with a quote from Luke. Consider the lilies how they grow. They don't toil, neither do they spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And she says, I've always loved the idea that it is possible to exist without toil and worry, but in my life, I've never found it to be true. For years, I had a different quote hanging in my office. The middle of anything always looks like a failure. 
which was to remind myself that while I continually seek instant gratification, it is more important to be working than to sit idle hoping, hoping good things will come. Because I am a selfish being, sometimes when good happens, I don't take the time to celebrate. Instead, I look ahead like a small child at Christmas, eager for the next present. This year, I declared I would publish 12 books. In truth, it is kicking my ass. Duh, no, no shit. shit. Fortunately for me, writing is a solitary profession, and only my immediate family and a few good friends have seen me ride the roller coaster of emotions from high to low and back again. Mm. I'm not going to publish my to-do list. It exhausts me to contemplate the unending column that even if I finish doing each and every one, tomorrow more would appear. She also needs an editor on this. However, I will say every time I'm able to cross another line off the mall as a small victory. And the reason I'm reading this to you is because it seems like she sent, she set a really high mark for herself, again, trying to get her writing career going, and it didn't work. And that was three years ago, but that was her last blog post. And I think she had a couple books come out after that. It just seems very unreal. I mean, not, not even unreal. It's impossible. Well, I think it's kind of an irony that she says she... She ha- she has to understand you have to work rather than get instant gratification. But you can't write a good book in a month. It doesn't matter what kind of book it I is. I know. And I'm not sure what she meant by writing 12 books in a year. I'm not sure if she meant they would be published or online. Uh-huh. But what I see from what I know about what you have to do as a writer and from living it every day, I see an energetic effort by a self-published writer to jumpstart a career and get some notice. But I think it fizzled several times. I don't see a consistent effort by her, and I don't see the marketing things that would be obvious online, library appearances, stuff like that, that would all show yeah. up online. Yeah. Reviews from other sources. Well, it's like she thinks she's that just putting her books out there, they're automatically going to... Right, and I will say her. she mentions in that interview that her first wrong book, The Wrong Brother, <laughs> I think it is, is her bestseller. Now, granted, that was first published in 2011, and I looked up the Amazon ranking, and it's like 650,000-something, which may sound like people haven't bought much of it, but there are millions of books on Amazon. So I would guess, I can't guess how many would have been sold by that, but it means that more than just her family bought it, put it that way. It's very hard to get traction, even if you're traditionally published. Any traditionally published author who's not published by a big publishing house will tell you that and i'm not knocking self-published writers but i know from experience editing self-published books and also from being a judge for many years in the writer's digest self-published contest that the dream and the reality are very very far apart even if you're talented and hardworking, i think people think it's going to be a lot easier than it is and you're not going to have you're not going to get fame from it i mean or you're not living people point out things like 50 shades of gray and those are flukes but there are like 50 million self-published books a year yes it looks like she had a recent renewed effort from from her website for 2018 she has on it on the homepage, 2018 is finally upon us change is an opportunity make this year yours Blessings upon you all. Mm. Book five of the Wrong series came out in 2017. That's on the homepage. The Wrong Seal. He's a former Navy Seal. Not a Seal. He's a player. She wants in the game. It was the perfect arrangement. What could possibly go wrong? So I'm assuming the premise of these books is that 
you're already with somebody and you fall in love with somebody I have else, to say, but... I have not read any of her books. <laughs> Romantic Times Review, she has a blurb from them on her website, says, This is a fine mystery that reads a lot like a TV show, which is I think is damning with faint praise, but I don't think Romantic Times Review means it that way. With the right blend of humor and suspense, along with a strong, independent female lead and the sexy alpha who loves her. The plot itself was somewhat complicated, but the sizzling heat Travis and his brothers bring to the table more than makes up for it. Ah. I think that was for the wrong hero, not the wrong seal. It's hard to tell from the website. (laughs) But she also says, I clicked on the book's link because I I get from Amazon that she's published eight books, including the one about your your plot arc. So I clicked on the book's link on her website to see, because normally you would have all your books lined up there. But what she has is a note. There are those who say, pick a genre. Stick with it. Or pick a second genre and write under a different name. Readers will be confused. At this point, I believe it is still clear. I write nonfiction books on how to write, well, one, and fiction books under the romance suspense genre. The biggest problem will be when I write a fiction book that is a historical paranormal. And I'm super, <laughs> and I'm so, super excited about the first book in that series, which is about 50% done. Then what will I do? Will you as the reader be confused, or do you believe a good story is a good story? If you have ideas on how to handle this, let me know at nancybrophy at gmail.com. I always welcome your opinions. And it's not clear from her books if that paranormal Ooh, came out or when she wrote this. paranormal. Interesting. Yeah. I have no idea what her marriage was like. My guess is few people do, even the people who knew them well. I have no idea what their finances were like. It sounds like that fire and its aftermath were stressful. And she had that on her website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do have some idea what her husband was like. He was someone who had a passion and talent for what he wanted in life and was consumed by it. From what I know about her, she was a mildly talented writer who desperately wanted to do that for a living. Maybe have the life as a writer that her husband has as a chef. I have no idea what the evidence is against her. I have no idea why she would have killed her husband if she did. But I do know one thing. It's a hell of an irony that his murder got her the kind of attention she never would have gotten otherwise, though only after she was arrested for it. Aww. That's my... Your chair is squeaky. My chair is squeaky. If you guys hear noises, I'm not it's really squeaky farting. chair. So that's my report. Okay. I know it wasn't the... You, the kind of sad, but, I, well, well, you can, you know, when we find but, out more, when she goes, to, if she goes right. to trial. And maybe my assessment... <laughs> Of what was going on with her, based on what I could find out, is wrong. I'm looking at it from my perspective, from what you have to do as a writer, and the kind of things you do. And I agree it's sad, because I look at her website, and she was trying really, really hard. Yeah. But, but and I could be just projecting from what I see with other self-published writers, I think her expectations were greater than what she was getting out of it and it looks like she did stall a lot and it must be hard to be in that position when you're married to somebody who's driven and passionate about what they're doing and they're getting acclaim and they're known around town and they're on tv and i feel like her first blog post about the even though it was written about tv celebrity chefs well, oh might have been the one more. not yeah. the how to murder your no husband, but the but one about yeah about, about train chefs, wreck. the yeah. train wreck 
there's a little truth to it. I can't help but think the how to murder your husband thing. Just some of the lines, and especially the ones that any of us are capable of, if, yeah. if driven. Some people say, oh, she really thought it out. Well, if you're writing murder mysteries... You do think stuff like that out. She writes romance suspense. You do. Which I mean, obviously, but if you're I, a writer, I, you think of shit like that. What I have to say is, and you know, I take a lot of the grisly stuff we talk about and everything kind of with a... I, you know, I don't get real upset by it a lot, and I can talk oh, about yeah, really like I do. grisly... Well, you, well you I do get, get teary. But what I'm saying is, I have to believe if I were happily married, and this is just me, I'm not speculating about her, if I were going to write something, How to Murder Your Husband... It would be so wildly, profanely funny and out there that there would be no, absolutely no question that it was tongue-in-cheek yes, and satire. Because I, I don't not think only, hers was... It right, not only, not only for the public, but for the husband. Yeah, so because I can't imagine, at least the guy I'd be married to, his feelings wouldn't be hurt by something like that. And I wouldn't want that kind... Because it... Her reading that, it just felt hostile. And it could be because she's not a great writer. But yeah. there was no humor. There was a tiny, yeah, tiny, I didn't obvious think it humor. it was funny enough. I felt like it wasn't... It either should have been so... It should have been had more more detail, more meat to it, I guess. And be either so, like, serious that would make you wonder. Or be really, really funny. But in either case, I don't think there was enough to it. My guess is she had a word limit. It was 700 oh, could words. Be. But, and just, maybe somebody proposed it to her it and she didn't pull it off well. Just, if I had read that and she hadn't been arrested for murder, I would have said, I'm not, I don't know what this piece of writing's yeah, intent I, is. Well, when you read it, that's how I felt. I don't know if it's... Right. And I'll put it on our website when I yeah. get around to it, if it still yeah. can be found online, or I'll just make a PDF out of the screenshot I have of it. So people can read it for themselves. Maybe my reading of it. I'm hoping that whatever the evidence, I I would. I'd imagine. Love to, yeah. I hope. Well, it was eight thirty in the morning in an urban area. And eight thirty, things are picking up. Yeah. It was a weekday morning. Yeah. Somebody had to have seen something. Yeah. You know, I would have to think that somebody. There's a reason why they arrested her. I mean. They, right. And there was, and it's hard to find out, I mean, this isn't a mystery novel, if there were other people who would have killed him or wanted him dead. It's kind of thing Dateline like He, right, he, did, his life seemed so consumed with what he was doing as a chef, it doesn't seem like he would have been in, into anything. Although, if he's teaching at a culinary institute... There are students. There are people. many young people yeah. in his So classes. he could have been fooling around. Well, that's what I'm wondering if it was. And this is total, total, And it's total, funny how total, I think he's fool, the one fooling around when a lot no. of times when it's the husband that kills the wife, I assume he's got something on the side. I mean, maybe she did, but um, I don't know. Judging from her motives in that, maybe this was boiling for a long time. I know, that makes you wonder. 2011. Yeah, you gotta wonder. But I wondered, A... If they were having financial trouble from the fire and stuff. Yeah. And even from all his interests and in gardens and the 40 mushrooms. chickens and the mushrooms. and Or he wasn't paying enough attention to her and she wanted the attention. A Phil Hartman type thing, possibly. Mm -hmm. Who knows if he was an asshole. And see, he was surrounded by young people who adored him. And he could have possibly been having an affair. He was 63, she was 68. 
It's not a great... He could have had... Yeah, but men that age... Yeah. Oh, she was older than him, too. And I'm not saying he even necessarily did something wrong. I'm not victim-blaming. I'm saying from her point of view, why would she... Well, we'll probably find out. And then you can update it. I will update it. I might even do, if there's enough information, another episode, because this the one way this episode is different from any script I've done before is that... I thought there would be more information about yeah. them in their lives, and there really wasn't. And I had to do some actual journalism, like finding the Zillow, finding out their address, yeah. which I found online in one of those, you know, where they want you to buy, where pay money to find somebody's criminal record. Yeah, but yeah. I found their address, them finding it on Zillow, because wow. I wanted to see if it was still listed, since the neighbors had mentioned. Yeah. But I feel like even when reporters talked to neighbors and stuff, they didn't ask they didn't seem to ask a lot of questions. I know. I I thought I had read somewhere that both of them had been married before they got married because they would have been if they were married for twenty seven years they would have been in their she would have been in her early forties he would have yeah. been in his late thirties and I couldn't find that again but I thought hmm. I read somewhere it was a second marriage for both of them. Don't um, I don't know if either of them had children. I don't know where either of them were born. I know. Her, so the whole long. thing about her jobs seems weird. Yeah. Like, even though I'm a writer, you can easily find online what my jobs have been yeah, for the past 30 years. But I really feel deep down she just expected more of her career as a writer because I see that a lot with, particularly with self-published yeah. writers that I've personally had to deal with that, Their expectations are very, very, very high. Well, I think people also that aren't familiar with a a certain profession, but they want to do it. Like people that know me, as I've mentioned before, I'm an artist. A very good one. I'm not a professional artist. I don't do it for money. But people, they'll see, if I see my artwork, what do you do? You could could be, you know, what are you working here for? It's like, because you don't make any money. You know, creative people don't necessarily aren't rich. You know, writers, most writers we know have other jobs. Most artists I know have other jobs. Yeah. They're either teachers or they work somewhere else or they're, you know. I know teachers who have other jobs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, profe- they're professors or they're. People. But you, you, people make assumptions. But if you're not a creative right. person, you don't realize how much time it takes to do something and how little money. And you're not doing it to get the money anyway. Right. But, I would like know. to, as I've said before, I would like to make enough money for my writing so that I could focus on it more and not have to work two other yeah. jobs. That said, I didn't expect all sorts of riches the fr- yeah, when my first you book got published. It. But I think people do, and I think that they have not just the money expectation, but what I see in a lot of self-published writers is that when their book goes onto Amazon, okay, everybody, yeah, here everybody I am. Yeah, everybody will be snapping it up. And... And she did some of the right things. She got that um, blog interview on romancing the genre. Mm-hmm. and But she only blogged four times on yes. her own website. And my website's in transition. If anybody's going to think I'm being a condescending bitch and go on my website and see, well, you know, yeah. it's going to. But she is, but. I, but, but I joined, you know, main yeah. crime writers where we blog. So I blog once a month on that. But the thing is. You have to have a concerted effort. 
And and you have to do it yourself. And you have to do it yourself, even especially if you're, you're self-published. But even when you have a publisher, right. like, now that I'm a hanger on with your, your yeah, like, you're my entourage. Um, but but they, you have to like do library. Yeah, they talks. a lot of authors do stuff themselves nowadays. It's not like the old days when before the internet. Really, the right. internet has has kind Changed of diluted everything. everything. Well, the internet has helped in some yes. ways because there are people who can get my books that wouldn't be able yes, to. Yes, exactly. And who can hear about me, who can find, or any writer, their Facebook page or their website. But you have to, for instance, I let libraries know I'm available. I donate my books to libraries so they'll know who I am and they'll read my books and they'll see them and they'll say, okay, that's somebody we want. And, that, and you have to, like, build this foundation Mm-hmm. And your last blog post on your website can't be three years old. Yeah, you said you had a hard time finding stuff out about her. Did she have another? Did she have another job while she's doing the writing? Well, you heard what I said about her job. Yeah, it's she unclear. Had, yeah, she had those. The Oregonian said she did certain things. She had that smart money thing on her like LinkedIn page, which doesn't sound thing. Yeah, she apparently at some time had a catering business with her husband. Yeah, that's right. The Oregonian called an insurance company they said she worked for they didn't name it and a catering company they thought she so worked she for probably they was name. doing different jobs trying to make she, some and money. she said on her website she wrote technical manuals so she was probably freelancing yeah, but probably. usually if you do that you you're a contract writer and there's some you have web presence yes. somewhere too so she may have been her husband may have been the breadwinner yeah could be you know, it's hard to say. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's was very hard to find out information, even though he was apparently well enough known in That's his circle. It was hard to find out it's information weird about him. That there's isn't more, but maybe if she goes to, I mean, obviously if she goes to trial to have stuff, but maybe if she pleads guilty. Well, she pled not fine. guilty at her arraignment. Yeah, but they do that a lot. In so movie. if she pleads guilty, though, they might unseal the F date. That's true, too. You know, I just want to know more. I know. I know. You know? It's and it's funny because when she was arrested, it was when I was on vacation with Liz, who lives in Portland, Oregon. But I was doing something on my iPad and a notification came up, you know, maybe from people through crime or something, you know. A romance writer who wrote How to Kill Your Husband Arrested for Killing Husband. And that's the grabber. And I sent you a uh, You I did. Took a, a picture a couple of the days paper after I, had, I was reading the paper. Right. That's right. It seems like since that's the grabber, nobody feels like they have to. I know. They have to delve in it's more. It's kind of a double-edged thing. Nobody would be interested if that weren't the grabber. Yes. Fewer people would. But since that's the grab, it's, I know, like I said earlier, we complain about it all the time. But this was definitely a case where you're just reading the same information repeated over and over yes. and over and over it's again. Hard. The Washington Post actually did a little, and People Magazine did a little Enterprise reporting in the Oregonian, but not a lot. And it's like they don't even say, like they quote the mother, we're all shocked, but they don't say where she lived. I know. Well, how many murders are in Portland, Oregon? They couldn't be that many. I, I didn't I mean, look it up, but there that... were, there's were been a couple this year. Yeah, okay, but still, I mean... I, know. I don't know. It seems like you... But it's like, not to diminish any murder, but it, you would think it would be an interesting enough mystery. Yeah. Well, people who's magazine this chef, something on it. So. Even before... No, but I'm talking about before she was arrested. I know. This chef yeah. was shot to and death. And it's a mystery. Yeah, you don't know who did it. Right. You yeah. would think that the Oregonian would have had a, a really looked into who he was. 
and done a thing. I on know. It. I know. Well, but anyway. Okay. Well. Well, that's my. Thank you. Yeah. For your interesting. And I guess now we're today. Yes. And now we have our recommendations. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to do my first since you've been talking. My recommendation is for a Netflix show. Surprise, surprise. Seems like I think that's all I do are Netflix shows most of the time. Don't tell me you had your mic off the whole time. No, I didn't, but I was going to eat the rest of my cookie, so I was going to mute it, and then it went to mute. Mine sometimes I have to press it twice really hard. she said. Okay, so I'm doing Netflix show, American Vandal. I'll talk about both seasons, but I just finished watching the second season, so I'm going to talk more about that. Did we not do the first season as one of our I don't know. If we did, sorry. I'm not going to talk much about the first season anyway. I think we did talk about it, but I don't know if we we did a recommendation. I'm not sure. I think we did because I remember... Like the visuals we talked about, the graphics for the... the I didn't think we did. Are okay, maybe sure? we didn't, but it doesn't matter because you're talking about I'm the second it. season. Okay, yes. So I'm going to go down the uh, Negative Nellie's list of items, and then I'll talk about it. So bad reenactment. I don't think there are any reenactments in this, and especially the first season they do have that, the computer animated little thing of, of the guy getting a hand job mm. on the dock. <laughs> And that, that was pretty good. I can't take off any points because they did show them yeah, being interviewed off, and stuff, but they weren't reenactments. You can take off points for bad reenactment, but you can't no. take off a point for no reenactments. I know. I was saying, like, but any, but right. if they have any, they're right. good is right. what I was saying. Oh, okay. They should. I wish I could give extra points because of the computer generated. Yeah, I know. I know. I'll synopsize the show after I go through this. Narrative cliches, not really. If there are some, it's because it's a parody. American Vandal's a parody of, if you haven't watched it, and you really should watch it. It's a parody of like true crime docudrama. I wanted to say that. When I, I have only watched about half of it of the second <laughs> season, and I felt there was a narrative cliche, but I'm going to wait till I watch the whole thing okay. to see how that pans out. Yes, okay. It's hard to say whether it's a true cliche, because a lot of these, the shows it's modeled on, like 48 Hours and, and Dateline, but also some of the um, Netflix series like The Keepers or something like that, a lot of those have narrative cliches, and it's making fun of those. Right, it's hard like, with a parody. Like the, the part, you, like, you noticed on the Keepers that bugged you when, like, showed someone pouring tea and stuff. Yeah, yeah. They did that on this, yeah, and reminded yeah. me of you. So there's stuff that you don't know. I mean, is it a cliche, or are they making fun of a cliche? I, I don't know. When but I watch something like this, job. I assume every assume single thing they do to. is calculated. Yeah. So I'm going to not take off any points for that. Unlike there. How to Murder Your Husband I, blog post. Yes. Racial, gender, obtuseness, no. Not really. They make fun of a lot of it. But again, I don't see it. They've got the black kid that's the basketball player and his friend. I don't think there's any obtuseness there. They're showing the way people treat him and... Right. And you have to see the whole thing, too. Uh, yes. I think you really that's, have to that's, one of, that's a thing that I want to wait till I see the yes. whole thing. Lack of good visuals? No. Oh, it's, On no, the contrary, there are very, just everything is like they have film clips and stuff yeah. that people have taken I on their love, phone. I love when it shows the yearbook photos of the kids because yes. they all look so funny. Yes, they do. 
Missing pieces now, well, if you watch the whole thing. The thing about both seasons of it, they both do have a mystery, kind of, that they're trying to solve. Yeah. And you do keep watching. I mean, it is super funny, but you also want to see what the answer, right. who's doing it. The first season kind of is unresolved. Sorry if I'm giving you a spoiler. I feel like it's resolved, it's but not kind officially of, but, resolved. Yes, yes. Inaccuracies, anachronism, no. It's set in the present. There aren't really, I don't know if there's any inaccuracies because I'm old. I'm not in high school right now. I don't know. They use some phrases I've never heard yes, of Yes, they do. As far as inaccuracies, I have no, I don't know. Anachronisms, anachronisms doesn't really apply, so no. Storytelling, uh, if I could give extra points, I would. Yeah. It's so fucking good. I can't say enough about how great it is. Freshness. The fact that it's a satire is some things aren't fresh, but again, it's because it's, they're making fun of things. So, but I would say the comedy itself is fresh. I haven't laughed at a show, um, and any comedy show as much as the first season and the second season. I mean, recent comedy shows. There's no staleness to the humor. Right. And there's a danger with something like this. To repeat a lot of, yeah, because the first season was so popular to just yes. repeat a lot and of the same And I was worried tropes. this was going to happen. And it, it's, it really they isn't. they have freshened it up. No, yeah. um, repetition. The only repetition is because it's kind of a satire of these other shows where they recap some of the stuff yes. when they're talking. But again, but again, it's yeah. it's because it's so and and the way they do it is funny because the stuff, the subject matter is so funny, and I'll talk about that. After yeah. I go through this. Beating the drum, no. And there are places where they could have been didactic if they wanted to. Or where they could have, especially near the end. Just like with season one near the end, there's some, I don't know if you want to say pathos or... Poignancy. Yeah, there is some. And there is some in this too. But it's very deftly handled and I say... I like the poignancy. Yes. I feel like they're making some points beyond yes. the satire and they do, about friendship. And they do in this as and, well. Um, so... They do a good job. So, if you haven't watched it, season one takes place in this Oceanside High School, I think. It's a high school in California. You know, just a typical high school. Somebody has spray painted a bunch of dicks on on the teacher's cars, and these these two boys are trying to solve it. Right, they're doing like a video documentary. documentary. So, oh, by the way, my score is perfect yes. for American Vandal. It yes. deserves a perfect score. I, I don't know that. if I've ever given a perfect score. I might have. I'm going to say the acting is excellent with the two young men, the actors. Tyler Alvarez plays Peter Maldonado, who's the one of the docu- kind of the lead documentarian. Yeah, yeah. And Griffin Gluck is he's his like buddy. Son, buddy. Yeah. The two of them are so funny. They're such good actors and they look young. They're not ringers like you see in a lot of these right. teen dramas where they have these twenty somethings. All the kids look all the kids look yeah. young and they're all good actors. Yes. And they're all so realistic. Yes, they are. They are. Their acting is so natural. Even the kid that's the in the second season that's supposed to be he's the suspect. Oh, I didn't say what the second season was. So the second season, <laughs> there's a, this person called the turd burglar who is doing these pranks and they all involve poop. And I don't want to get too far into it's it. It's fantastic. Yeah. At first I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like it. But he, that kid, he's supposed to be kind of, he does a good job. Yes, he does he, a good job. He's a weird, the kid, you know, that's kind of weird, but acting weird on purpose to get attention. And and they show some moments when you can see the real yes. him. And, and it's just, it's so, I can't even tell I, you. And I, I just want to say. I love it so much. The only 
issue I have, and I don't even know where it would fall within our rating system, and I don't know if I would take points away if I were doing it, is the first season was a lot more about Peter and, oh, why can't I remember his name either? And the second season, you don't even see them for a while. No, you don't see them And then some of what they do is just kind of wrote, you know, the kind of the cop looking at their bulletin board thing, and they're not as involved in some ways. But I'm only, like I said, halfway through it, and they they kind of pick up steam as they go along. But it is more about them... um his name's Sam. Sam. The second season is less about them. And yeah. it's more about the kids at the uh, at the Catholic school. But it's just... It is very I good. can't... I, it's, and it's the adult characters, so many, too. The, the adult, adult characters. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but it's like, everything's well written. The teen storyline is good. And we're, obviously, well out of our teens, and we, we liked it. I think that a young person would probably like it, too. I, I don't know. I just yeah, feel like... Yeah, I think it's relatable. And I like the fact so that, that the characters, there's nobody, like, really bad. There's no one bad, and there's no there's one... There's compassion good. to it, you know? There's no goody-goody. Right. I mean, and there's no judgment. It's not promoting teen drinking or sex, but it's also not condemning it. It doesn't it. judge. It's the, just showing it. Right. Like that, that challenge be- they have at their skip day where they have to, like, the teams have to drink a case of beer and then eat all these pizzas and smoke joints and then put together this 500-piece puzzle. And it's wicked funny. It's funny. You just have yeah. to. But I, so I highly. I agree. Obviously, I highly recommend it. And in fact, I was really, really tired last night and I started watching and I'm like, well, I'll watch two episodes. And I think I watched four and I was just, like, falling asleep. So I had to go to bed. But it's hard to stop watching it. It's just so, especially if you watch a lot of these these other ones. Right, if you're watching true crime all the time, it, all of the true crime shows have I will the say, same kind of formula. And it, I will so say funny. though, aside, even though it has poop humor, if you're the kind of person that doesn't really like satire. Or you need huge belly laughs. I'm not sure this will be your cup of tea. Yeah, it depends on your type of humor. If you don't like Christopher Guest movies, because you. If that kind of humor is kind of your not your thing, or if you don't get it, then you might not think this right. is that funny. Yeah, because the joke that the prankster, you know, people pooping or or poop getting thrown at people is not necessarily funny. It's the other stuff. It's right. This yeah, right. and someone painting dick pictures on cars is not funny. Well, it's kind of funny. I know, but. <laughs> Yeah, but, but anyway. it's not, that's right. not what's, yeah. So anyways, that was well, mine. Well, I, I agree so with that. So what are you doing? Well, you I'm doing... You always do smart people things, like books and stuff. I, thanks. I'm going to do a book, because I just read it, and I was actually going to do a documentary that I watched on Netflix, but then realized that I had had a lot to say about it and couldn't remember any of the things mm-hmm. I had to say and need to watch it again. So I, I am doing a book. The reason I'm doing a book is because, like I said, I just read it. I haven't had a lot of time to watch much stuff. You've done the one thing I was watching. I've watched a lot of bad true crime documentaries, Dateline and stuff. I don't feel like doing those, so I'm doing a book. And we've already talked about Dateline. This book, it's called After the Eclipse by Sarah Perry. I can't really classify it as true crime because it's about the murder of her mother when she was 12. Mm. And... It's kind of, you get into this funny area when you have a true crime slash memoir. It is a, there, there is a mystery to it. It kind of affects my rating in a little that it's not a full out true crime book. 
in a way, I can't rate things the same way. Do you want the rating list? Yes, I do. Thank you. Just for a little background, they lived in Bridgeton, Maine. Her mom was a single mother. Sarah was 12 when she was killed. Her mother had a bad history with men, as many of them do. And Sarah was in their little house and heard it happening. Aww. In fact, I drove by the house. I was in New Hampshire the other day. The thing was, her mother, who worked at a shoe shop, like many people did, this was in 1994, her mom was killed. Um, you mean like a shoe factory? Yeah. Oh, I think you, I think Not a store, yeah. right. In central, western, and northern Maine, we called them shoe shops. The people in southern Maine don't. Uh, her mom had saved up and bought this little plot of land, in, like in town, and they bought a modular home. And they were so proud of it. Her mother was so proud of their little house. And in the book, Sarah talks about how she drove up when she started writing the book to get the whole case file. She was killed in 1994. There was an arrest and a trial finally in 2006 because of DNA. The book just came out, I think, last year. But she mentions what a mess the house was. So when I was driving home from New Hampshire, I went through Bridgeton. And it's very easy to see where the house is. And it's just awful. I don't mm. even know if somebody lives there because the front door was kind of hanging open. It's really dirty. Like, there's this big, like, somebody or a dog or a person would kick the door open. So there's this dirt and the yard is all weedy. Oh. And it's just, and it's sad because you read the book about how proud they were of their little house. The house yeah. plays a big part. But also, afterwards, she ran out. It was raining. It was like May. And knocked on doors and nobody would answer. And she ran all the way down the road to this restaurant that was at the corner of the road in Route 302. And the couple who owned the restaurant answered the door. They were this Italian couple and let her in. And the restaurant's still there and open and stuff. So it's kind of, to see that is kind of... And then it turns out some of the people who heard her knocking heard her and didn't open their door. Even She was yelling, you know, somebody killed my mom and stuff. And they were scared or whatever. But in any case... Yeah, but call the cops. It's a... I'll go through... Asshole. I don't want to give too much... Okay. Uh, wait. Bad reenactments, obviously, don't, don't apply because it's a book. <laughs> Narrative cliches? Not really. There are a certain type of people in Maine, type of poor people, type of people who lives in this town. I wouldn't call it narrative cliches because these are people she knew and they are who they are. Racial and gender obtuseness? No. There's a lot of gender stuff, but it's real and it's what happened. Not really any race stuff because it's white. white Maine. Lack of good visuals. I'm going to take away half a point. There are no photos except for the one on the cover. And I understand it's not a true crime book. 16 pages of photos. It's her memoir. But she does a thing, and I understand this, but I've read too many books that do it lately, and it drives me nuts, where they talk about photos. Oh, and this oh I hate are, that. But then the photo isn't there. Yes, I and don't it's like, like that. And I understand it plays a part. And she also talks several times in the book about... Like somebody's watching forensic files or somebody's talking about a murder that just happened or something. And she can understand how people can kind of get off on crime because, of course, she was in a house where somebody was murdered. And I understand her point of view. So I understand this isn't a true crime book. And maybe she thought photos would be too exploitive. She doesn't explain it, but I would like to see more photos. I'd like to see what her mom looked like. I'd like to see some of these photos she described. I'd like to see some of the men she talks about in the photos of them that they have, but there are none, except for the one on the cover, which is a nice photo of her. Missing Pieces, and by the way, her mom's name was Crystal Perry. Not really 
There are things that I'd like to know more about, but again, this is a memoir, and it's from her point of view, and there are things, I mean, she covers the bases pretty well. Inaccuracies or anachronisms, there was one thing, and now I can't remember what it was, that I'm like, no, that wouldn't have been happening in the early 90s, but I can't remember it, so I don't feel justified taking any points away or something I can't even remember. Storytelling, pretty good. She weaves the history of her mother and her life with her mother and their family into what happened after the murder and the murder. It kind of goes back and forth. It's not totally linear. It's kind of linear in a way, but weaves the... And it works very, very well. And I would say the only issue, which I'm going to take away half a point, is that at one point, after her mom's killed, she gets shuffled around. And ends up um, having to go live with this aunt in Texas who doesn't treat her well. But she goes through a litany of the men it could have been. And it turns out, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, the guy who did it is one of these, it's probably a dozen guys. But when this guy is arrested, I had to like go back and look to see what she said about him. And she never kind of makes a nod towards... And then there was another part, and I remember, oh, there's this other part of the book where there's stuff about this guy, too. I And I couldn't find it. And I'm still going to look because I want to read it. The only flaw is that she needs to say, he was the guy who blah, blah, blah. Yeah. In some way, in some well-written way, because she's a very good writer. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, I'm taking away half a point because... Readers, like, I, I remembered the name from the from when she was talking about all the guys because it was actually the name of a guy I went to high school with, but I'm like, oh, no, it couldn't have been him because different ages and yeah. stuff, and I, also we didn't live there. So I remembered his name, so that's how I remembered it had been one of those names. And then I remembered, oh, there's another part where, but I couldn't find it. So what I'm saying is there needed to be some... Readers aren't going to, the writer may remember, but readers aren't going to necessarily remember who that guy was. I'm taking off half a point. Freshness, very fresh. It's a perspective you don't see a lot of. She really makes you think about a murder like that, and it's just what you'd think it was, that you don't think about... If you're watching a true crime show, I mean, you do see the families of victims, but when the family of the victim is describing hearing it and what happened and what they were thinking and also the aftermath and how they were treated by people and what their life was like and her life pretty much, you know, and the frustration and anger she felt as well as the grief and everything as a child who was misunderstood and treated and you poorly said by she was 12. She was 12, yeah, which is hard anyway. And, uh, yeah. And in that, and it was just her and her mom living mm-hmm. there. Yeah. yeah. Her mom came from a very big family, so she had a lot of aunts and uncles. It was kind of a dysfunctional family, as many are. And I don't want to say too much about it because it's. I highly recommend the book, and okay. I want people to read it. And uh, Repetition. Anything she repeated, there was a good reason for it. And I was not frustrated by the same points being run. Beating the drum. No, she did mention a couple times her feelings about friends, you know, going on about some true crime thing or something. And yeah, I those can are her. Fe- it. Those are her feelings, and I don't think she is judging people. It's just that from she, I think what she was hoping is people would be a little more sensitive to the fact. Well, that yeah, I mean, I probably here's someone wouldn't. whose mom was murdered. Yeah, you know, 
And as far as like beating the drum for the death penalty, which Maine doesn't have or anything, no. As far as like calling the guy an evil monster or anything, no. She just tells, she does a very good job of telling the story and um, letting you feel what you feel. And so that's a nine. And it's after the eclipse, and then there's like a sub title that I can't yeah and when I just googled it it came and up it's Sarah Perry mm-hmm. and I have to read it and mm-hmm. I got it in hardcover Sounds good. I just highly recommend I highly highly recommend it and I think she captures Maine in a way that may be new to people who aren't familiar with Maine yeah. because it's a, a part of Maine it's a big part of Maine, this poor people and the way they live and stuff and and we talked about it with the albert flick thing too it's albert a, flick and we talked about it and on the logan marr one yes and also more familiar themes of women how they're treated how they're regarded by people how dangerous it is to be a woman how their complaints are not they're vulnerable right and how they're the treated time. by men isn't taken seriously and also as a poor woman especially one with children or a kid the situations that you're in and the way that kind of traps you into things. Well, when you're poor, too, you stop right. making choices that you might not. Right. And so make. it's a nine. My two half points off are very fairly minor things. I do like photos. I like pictures. I, I want to look at them. I want to see them. I'm disappointed when a true crime book doesn't have photos, I want to keep revisiting the photos and looking at them yes. as I read about the yes. person. Photos would have helped this book. I don't think they... I don't know why she didn't include any. I don't think they would have been exploitive to have um, uh, pictures of her mom, pictures of some of the guys that she has pictures of, pictures of her mom's family who play a big part. You know, I just think it would have helped. Okay. And so that's my... Thank you. That sounds good. I'm going to have yeah, to Yeah, it's it. very... You can borrow it. I should have brought it, but I didn't. Yeah, for you to borrow. I'm still reading that other one. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It's too big. It's hard to read in bed. I know. I know. I'm sorry. So, is that it for this episode? I think it is. I think it is. And, and you're I'm next. doing the next yeah, one. I'm not sure to, what I'm doing yet. You're going to have to come up with something. I will. Don't make that face. No, I'm just trying to think. I don't know. I've got I've got a list of things. I'm trying to I try to write down things. I, I put know, them but in sometimes my phone. new things come up. And I know. No, I but I do because it's yeah. well, whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be good. No, thank you. Yeah, You're so supportive. I know. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Yeah, thanks for I'm listening. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I wanted to say, but I can't remember. Well, we can always say it next time. I just thank everybody. I thank them for. Oh, and you can find us. CrimeandStuffOnline.com. Yes. And you can find out everything you need to know about us from that. Yes. From the website and also find our... And maybe we'll have pictures and stuff. You could rate and review us. Since if you like pictures like us. Yeah, I'm going to try to... I know I keep saying that. I'm going to try to update that. I'm getting... I'm beginning to get a little traction on all the stuff I didn't get done. Mm Mm-hmm. Well... You know. I know. I I wish I could help. I know. I wish I could too. Uh But anyway. Uh Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. You can go back and find articles, follow-ups, looks. That's the printer. Yeah. Is he printing something out from his laptop? Probably. (laughs) Okay. Yes, he is. Um, An email. Jesus fucking Christ. Do you want to bring it down to him so he doesn't have to? Well, he's going to come up and get it. I just heard his fucking computer. Yeah, but he's going to print more.
How do you know that? I, well, I don't know. He just printed, maybe he's going through and printing. Should we it. ask him if he's going to print more emails out? I don't think we need to ask, do we? What the fuck? Do you want to go? Uh, I will. Are you going to print any more things? Jesus Christ.